would invite you to take out your Bible, open them to Psalm 85. That's where we're going to be at this morning. I also get the, well, it's the distinct privilege of mine to wish you all a happy new year. What do you know? A new year. It's exciting, right? I don't know. There's something about new year, new starts that just, for me, they provide energy. Um, you know, if you're like, you know, most people, we're thinking about new habits, new things that we can do the year ahead. There's possibilities that await us, uncertainties that lie ahead of us. There might be some of us that get terrified by that. Um, hopefully, it, it provides energy and excitement for you as you think about what lies ahead this year. Um, we want to think not just personally about what the new year means for us individually, but also corporately as a church. What does 2021 look like for us as a people? And so that's why we've kind of entered into a series, started last week on uh, Images of Renewal is the name of the series. And our hope and our prayer is that the Lord would renew us as a people, and we want to look specifically at God's Word to look and to consider at how He does that, and will we recognize when renewal is in our midst? What images should we be looking for? Okay, so this morning... Um, this passage is me preaching out of Psalm chapter 85, the entire psalm. I am going to just read one quick verse uh, just to get us started. It's kind of the, the, the main verse of this passage, and it's in verse 6. And it really is sort of the main point of the message this morning. Verse 6, I'll read it one more time. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? In you. Let me just pray real quick and we'll dive in this morning's message. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, I do pray right now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would use this word which we know is eternal, which we believe to be true. Lord, might you write it on our hearts and use it to form us and to shape us to become the people you have designed us to be. Lord, we ask these things in your precious name is uh, Jesus. Amen. Well, Bob Dylan one of my favorite musicians. We've got a lot of favorite musicians. He's, he's one of them, okay? He's widely considered to be one of the most influential figures in the 20th century. Don't know if that or not. And today, at nearly 80 years of age, I mean, this guy is nearly 80 years old, um, he remains a musical genius, cultural icon, and a literary legend. President Barack Obama said of Dylan in 2012, there is not a bigger giant in the history of American music than Bob Dylan. While not everyone here may be a fan of Bob Dylan, you certainly cannot deny his remarkable career. It really, was a, it really is a remarkable career. Alongside his distinct voice and his powerful lyrics, one of the skills that Dylan has truly mastered which has really, I think, kept him at the forefront of the music industry really since the 1960s, is his ability to constantly reinvent himself. Constantly reinvent himself from one decade to the next. From folk music to rock music to country music to gospel music, Dylan has transformed himself Time and time again, remaining re relevant, extending his career. In fact, the tour that he started in 1988 is called the Never Ending Tour. Didn't see COVID-19 coming. Had it. It would still be happening. But 1988, played more than 2,500 shows. I mean, this guy is, is just unbelievable, unstoppable, right? Artistic reinvention. 
It's not uncommon, right? We see it happen over and over again. It's not unique to Bob Dylan. His success in reinventing himself, however, is entirely unique. There are some that try and simply can't do it. The truth is reinvention is an art. Beyonce maybe mastered it a little bit too, you know? Reinvention is an art. While many struggling artists have attempted it, few have mastered it. Few can really pull it off because really, in and of itself, reinvention is an art. If there were a series, sort of a secret formula or a a secret equation, certain steps that you had to follow in, in order to guarantee that you would be able to reinvent yourself as a musician or as an artist in any way, shape, or form, I guarantee you if there was a secret sauce, people would would pay a tremendous amount of money to understand what that is. Yeah, you can change your image, you can get a new team, take a break, rebrand. What is that formula? You know? People would pay top dollar to have it. Well, as much as we love stories of reinvention, stories of artists or maybe athletes resurrecting their careers, as much as we love the, the idea, it's inspirational, the idea of reinvention, as we consider where we are as a church, what is needed for us, you may think, is reinvention. And what Psalm 85 tells us this morning, it's not reinvention. What is needed is revival. What's needed for us, for God's people, is not a reinvention of who we are, a reimagining of what we might become. What is needed is revival. And Psalm tells us, Psalm 85 tells us that precisely here this morning. Now, when I say the word revival, when I say the word revival, I am guessing most of you are tempted to think about big tents. Do I need to move this down? Is there something I can do to help with that? Is it okay? It's okay. You got it. All right. When I, when I say the word revival, I think most of us here, images that come to our minds right away are things like big tents or large stadiums filled with people. Maybe smoke machines, laser beams, light shows, altar calls. When I say the word revival, most of us are tempted to think in terms of events or experiences. I want to be very clear. When the psalmist here in Psalm 85 says, revive us again, he's not trying to get a ticket to the nearest big tent, laser show, smoke machine, tent meeting. That's not what he's looking for, right? It's not what he's looking for. So what is, what is this word revival? It's a word that is used here. It's a word that we're going to be talking about over and over again over the course of the next month. What is meant by the word revival? Let me tell you what it is. It is a season of refreshing for the people of God that is brought about by the Spirit of God. That's what revival is. I'll say it one more time. Revival is a season of refreshing for the people of God that is brought about by the Spirit of God. That is what revival is. It's a time when the church witnesses extraordinary work of the Lord. It's not something that's, that's different that you add to regular work of gospel ministry. Rather, it is an intensification of what is regular, normal, faithful gospel ministry. Tim Keller is helpful when he speaks of revival. He calls it this. He says it's an intensification of the normal operations 
of the Spirit. Really helpful definition. It's an intensification of the normal operations of the Spirit. What are those normal operations of the Spirit? Things like conviction of sin, regeneration, sanctification, salvation. It's an intensification of the, of the normal operations of the Spirit that's brought about through the ordinary means of grace. Not smoke machines, laser beams, and light shows, but things like preaching, prayer, reading your Bible. Ordinary means of grace. Not additional means of grace. Ordinary. Those ordinary means of grace are what bring about a spiritual vitality that people who are wandering in the desert desperately long for. Ordinary means of grace. Now, if you look throughout your Bible, you will find example after example, example of revivals. Maybe the best most succinct verse in the Bible, verse and a half in the Bible, is in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, in the first part of verse 20, when it says this, verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. This is shortly after Jesus resurrected, ascended, they have Pentecost, they have the Spirit, they're seeing the people of God come together, do really extraordinary things, there's a healing, right? And, and then there's a message that is preached, and the message is preached by Peter, and it says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That is revival. Repenting and turning to God, that he may refresh us, not with new, exciting, crazy things, but with his presence. That's it. It's an intensification of that. So here's the deal. We, as a people, need to be revived. We do. And there's nothing wrong with recognizing that. In fact, your inability to recognize your neediness for renewal, for refreshment, is quite possibly the thing that will cause it from not happening. Right? We are a people who need to be renewed. We need to be revived. And who doesn't want in on God's refreshing, restoring work? Psalm 85 tells us simply this morning, not only is it possible, not only is it needed, but God loves to do it. And I can't think of a better message to hear this morning than Psalm 85. So as we look at this passage together, three things that will kind of walk us through three different stanzas, if you will, of revival. The first thing that's needed is that revival begins by remembering God's grace in the past. Revival begins by remembering God's grace in the past. Look at verses one through three. Lord, you were favorable to your land. Just notice the language, the past tense. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. All things God has done. What are we to do, Parkview East? How are we to operate? How should we conduct ourselves when the banner that is over our lives reads like this things aren't as they ought to be 
I don't know if you can relate. There's certainly aspects in my life where I can totally relate. Things are not as they ought to be. Things maybe in our church are not. You, you get a sense. They're just not as they ought to be. Should things be this difficult? Should it be so complicated, so hard? Life in general, is it really designed to be like this? How do you respond? What do you do when the time that you maybe saw blessings in favor of God seems to be in the rear view mirror? Yes, maybe you've tasted his goodness, experienced his favor, but now you find yourselves living maybe in what's called by many a valley. How do you respond when you sense that you are walking in a valley? You're not experiencing the mountaintop experience of, of spiritual joy and vitality in life, but you sense that you're living in a valley. How should you respond? What are you to do? What we see in the first three verses in Psalm 85 is that our working memory of God's former favor and blessing serves as the basis for our request for revival. As we come to him and we request that he would restore us, renew us, revive us, the basis for that request is our memory, is us remembering what the Lord has done, how he has delivered us, how he has breathed new life into us. Three verses, six verbs, which review how God has majestically, faithfully worked in the past for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Now, if you just consider the context of this specific chapter, you might be a little unclear. Because the specifics surrounding this particular psalm are actually unclear themselves. There's actually quite a bit of debate. What precisely was happening when the psalmist wrote this chapter? There is much debate. There are some psalms you can point to with sort of historical precision and say, this is the context. This is the historical setting. These are the events that were surrounding the author when they wrote these words. This psalm, it's hard to do that. There's a variety of different opinions. Maybe it was written on the occasion of the return of David after Absalom's rebellion. Or in response to the destruction of the Syrian army. Many, and I think the most popular one, is that it was, it was written and sung as the, return, the, the Jews returned from Babylonian exile. It's most likely of the possibilities. But whatever the specifics of the historical setting, this much is clear. God's people had at one time experienced God's presence in a really powerful way. God had visited his people and they wanted him to do it again. I mean, really, that's all you need to know. God had been faithful to them, had extended grace and mercy upon grace and mercy, and they want more. They want more. Just as others before them had at one time experienced God's grace, they want a taste, they want a glimpse, they want in on the action. Notice the elements of Israel's history, which would form sort of the basis for the request. Three things, in verse two you see it. They confess their sin, God forgave their sin, and he relented the very wrath that they deserved. Now, their glory days were not the result, let's be, let's be clear. Their glory days were not the result of their, they're not marked by their in, intervention or, sorry, in, innovation or intellect. That wasn't what brought about God's favor, was their ability to sort of manipulate their surroundings, their ingenuity, their geniusness, their, their intellect. None of that was what brought about God's favor. But rather, 
Their favor was completely a demonstration of God's mercy in that period. That alone is what brought about his blessing, his favor to them. So while the nation of Israel used this psalm to look back and to consider the wonderful mercies and deliverance of God throughout their history, so should we, brothers and sisters, be a remembering people who are constantly reminding ourselves of God's ultimate provision for us in Christ. The definitive work of God in Jesus Christ where he redeems us of our sins should be so baked into our memory. It should form and shape the way that we respond to everything in our life. See everything through that lens of how God saved us and needy people, desperate, broken, frail, messed up in our sin. God extended grace and mercy to us. And we, it's not, that was not an isolated incident that just happened one time. God saved us and now we're to just keep moving on from it. The gospel is to be something that as a people we come back to over and over and over and over again. Constantly reminding ourselves of God's faithful provision for us in Christ. We throw our hands up in the air and we remember what the Lord has done for us, Right? We humble ourselves before the Lord, confess our sins, ask him to revive us. We're not asking him for more of the same old, same old. That's not it at all. Rather, we're asking that he would refresh us with his mercy in a way that we've never seen before. Breathing new life into us as a weary people, exhausted sinners that we are, exhausted sinners that we are, is exactly what he wants us to do. So how do we remember I think of two maybe just practical ways to think of this. Individually, how do you remember the mercies of God in your life? What do you do to remember them? I'll be the first one to tell you I am not a good journaler. I have tried just about every technique, pens, pencils, notebooks, computers. I mean, I've just tried it all. I am not, it's a discipline that I have just not mastered. I, I marvel at people who, who do that. I just can't do it. I'm not a good writer, just in general, okay? But I need to be, <laughs> because I need some evidence that God has worked in my life. And it's one of the reasons why I'm like constantly trying to write things down. Oldest son gave me a little uh, green moleskin. I think it's a, the perfect place to start this year. It's small. And it wouldn't, you know, I think you fill a couple of pages, you know, words with one page and then turn it over, like not a huge commitment. Sometimes I get bogged down in the practicality, like I don't know if I can write a whole page right now and then where do I break that? You know, just whatever. A green little book dedicated maybe to God's mercy in my life. Why is that important? Why is that important? Because if we don't take note of how God has worked in our life, the favor that we have seen, the the goodness that we've seen him pour out, the answers to prayers that we've seen him give us, if we don't take note of those things, then we're tempted to assess God's faithfulness by our current circumstances, which is never the way to go, right? We're tempted to think that God's good because what's happening around me is presently good. Well, folks, what's happening around us is never always going to be good. We have to be, if we want to be a people who God revives, who God renews, we have to be, get, be, be a people who remember 
right? It's how the psalmist starts off in Psalm 85. Individually, that's how it could look. Corporately, how does it look? I'll tell you how it looks. See that little cup sitting on that stool? Why did he give us? Why does he give us things like sacraments? Why does he call us to sing songs when we gather? Why does he tell us to open up the word and to read it and to preach it? Why does God give us a formula for what our public gathering should look like? You know why? Because if we don't do those things, we will forget. If we aren't constantly singing songs about his grace and his mercy and his love and his kindness, if we're not constantly performing sacraments, remembering the blood that Jesus shed for us, we will forget. That's why worshiping together on Sunday mornings you know, whether it's virtually or live, is so, so critical. It's so important. It's one of the things I think that, you know, quite honestly, I'm most fearful of as we think about the reality of COVID-19, that people have checked out. And I'm not talking about just physical. There's many people who want to worship virtually, and it's totally fine. We want to make that as easy as possible, okay? But the danger of what we're experiencing right now is that people have just checked out, and not just the Parkview, church in general, 30%, I heard recently, 30% of the people who are engaged in church pre-COVID are no longer engaged, period. Meaning they're not coming on Sundays, they're not Zooming, they're not virtually streaming, they're not in a community group, they are unengaged with the church. 30% of the people who were, no longer are. When you consider millennials, that number jumps from 30% to 50%. 50% of the millennials pre-COVID in our country who were engaged in the church no more, no longer are. That's terrifying because you know what's likely not happening? They're likely not remembering on a regular basis God's goodness, God's grace, his mercy in their life with other people. They're, they're likely not doing that. And the further you get from that, the easier it is to just stay at a distance, you know? Revival begins by remembering God's grace in the past. That's where it starts. Verse 4 and 9. Next, revival requires that we return to God in the present. So the way we look at our past is we remember his favor. What do we do in the present moment? How do you characterize my activity right now? What am I supposed to do? Simply put, return to God. Okay? Well, what does that look like? Well, first it looks like this, verses four to seven, it looks like crying out to the Lord in total desperation, just complete desperation. Verse four, restore us again, O God, to our, of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. The psalmist recognizes as we should too, that his only hope for new life is found in the Lord. God alone is our reviver. He is our restorer. He himself is our only source of renewal. God himself, restore us again. This is all activity that only God can do. If we want new life in us as a people, individually, corporately, the only way that's possible is if God acts Towards us, initiates with us. All of this is God's doing. Revival comes from God. It cannot be self-induced. It cannot be manipulated. Rather, it's simply a gift of God's love. And because of that, what do we do? 
we beg and plead that he will revive us. We cry out in desperation. You know, for Christmas, we gave two of our boys iPhones. I'm not sure. Yeah, we gave them iPhones, okay? And uh, it was a big decision. It's a big thing, you know? Uh, one of the reasons why we wanted to do iPhones is because I have an iPhone, and, and you can control it. Now, I'm, don't read me wrong. I'm not a control type of, you know, whatever. But where parent, kids are concerned, I, I want to protect them, right? Um, I, wanna, I like the controls that you can have on the iPhone. I mean, you can shut that mug down, right? You can limit what can, how often they can use it, what kind of content, all that type of stuff, like for their good, you know? Um, what I wasn't really thrilled about with the iPhone thing was that in order for me to, for it to be utilized, you know, I had to really deal with my own iPhone mess, okay? If you have an iPhone, maybe you can relate to me. You have an Apple ID, you know, to... Uh, I had like four of them, and there were many different emails, and emails I didn't even get into anymore. I don't even know how to access, you know, and so my, I, my Apple ID was just a hot mess, and so what I should have done is, t I knew it was going to take some time. I've tried for a long time, like maybe get 10, 15 minutes into it, throw my hands up, get frustrated, move on, and just knew in order for us to really use these things the way we wanted to, I had to figure out this Apple ID situation, right? So what I should have done in hindsight is figured all that out and then gave them the phone. But instead what I did was we gave them the phone and then my Christmas day looked like, you know, Dad, when are you going to set it up? Right, because it's, you know, a phone that's got all this wonderful resource, great, it's a Christmas present, like, it's amazing, you know, and they just want to utilize it. But I know it's going to take me hours to set it up. So for, you know, several hours, Dad, are you going to, can you do this? Can, I'm trying to get it started, you know, like just really frustration, right? Their, their response, they knew that for them to utilize that phone, to enjoy that phone, that they were completely dependent on me figuring out that Apple ID. It was the only hope that they stood. So they continually asked, Dad, you're going to, right? I mean, really, it's a, it's a picture. It's a silly picture, but it's a picture of what it looks like for us, right? We recognize the only way we can experience newness of life, a refreshing of the spirit, is if God... If God does it. So how do we respond? We cry out to him. We are completely desperate and dependent on him to do it. And our posture in a season of renewal should be one of extending our arms out to him, begging and pleading, will you do this? Will you not revive us again? That we may rejoice in you. Now, here's the deal. That seems pretty easy, right? Just cry out. Just I mean, like, but the problem is, it goes, it is completely counterintuitive to us. Why? Because we are a people who like to just depend on ourselves. We're, we're a people who are self-reliant, right? We don't think we need help. Everything in our world and our culture says, what you need, you have inside of you. Go and do, right? But that's not how revival works. It's a posture of dependency on the Lord. We cry out to him. In total desperation. Secondly, what does it look like to return to the Lord? Return to the Lord looks like waiting on the Lord in expectation. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is good news. This is really good news for us. 8 and 9. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Notice the language. What he will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Notice the complete and total confidence that the psalmist has. 
right? He's crying out to the Lord in desperation. Revive us again. But he also cries out with total confidence. The Lord will speak. He will speak peace to his people. Surely salvation is near, that the glory may dwell in the land. As he cries out, he cries out with a sense of not just urgency, but one also of expectancy, right? Because he knows the Lord loves to do this. He loves to give his people what they long for. This is how God operates. And when you long for more of him, my goodness, he will not disappoint. He will not disappoint. He loves to give himself freely to us. It is yet such a hard posture for us to be in because we want, our response wants to be, we'll figure this thing out, right? We'll, we'll pull it together, individually, corporately, whatever. But the Lord says, no. If you want new life, you must return to me. That's how revivals work. That's how God pours out his renewing spirit. He gives his people a desire to return to him. Thirdly, finally, revival begins by remembering God's grace in the past. It requires that we return to God in the present. Thirdly, revival produces real change in the future. Now here's the deal. Revival produces real change. It's the reason why most of us want it. So our temptation is to skip directly to that and not do the hard work of remembering and returning and humbling ourselves. Most of us want to skip directly to phase three. Well, those other ones preceded for a reason. Let's look at what it is. Real change in the future. Look at verse 10 and 13. These are some amazing, amazing verses. After all the remembering, after all the longing and the crying out, waiting, after all of that happens... God shows up. And when God shows up, you can guarantee, take it to the bank every single time, everything is going to change. Everything changes. First, when God's people experience God's renewing power, they themselves are changed forever. Look at verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace, peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. God's attributes are on complete display here, right? They come together. They don't just embrace. His attributes come together and they kiss each other. They come together and they become not just, and this is the key point, not just his attributes. These are words that no longer just describe him. When God gives his renewing spirit, his attributes, his characteristics, his qualities become our qualities, become our characteristics. His God himself, the way he is, that becomes how we live and conduct ourselves as well. We become completely transformed. We respond with faithfulness and he pours out righteousness and that becomes our way of life. We are transformed, changed forever. We, we look to Christ and we see an, in Christ an image of exactly what this looks like. When faithfulness and righteousness kiss each other. These words can be translated in the Hebrew, grace and truth. And when Jesus came to earth, you know what Jesus was described as? A man who was fully grace and truth, embodied in one person. Right? As God's people, we look to Jesus as his ultimate provision for us. 
And our goal and our job in life is to live our lives look just like his. To bring our life into conformity with his. He gives us. He doesn't just call us to do this. He gives us an example. This is what it looks like so we can see that. So we become changed forever. We are faithfully, the image here is us reaching out in faithfulness from the ground and God raining down his righteousness on us as a people, transforming the way that we conduct our lives. Secondly, not just are our lives changed, but when God's people experience God's renewing power, they change the world around them as well. And that's crucial. Because what can happen when you think of wanting to be renewed? It's a small, subtle thing that can work its way in there is it can suddenly become something that is focused specifically just for you, which is not the point of renewal, right? It's not just something. Yes, we long for it for ourselves, but when we experience God's renewing power, it's not just us that's changed. It's the world around us. It's why Jesus calls us to be salt and light, right? He gives us his righteousness. We live our lives to look like his so that where we go, his righteousness goes with us. And the light that he calls us to be now invades the darkness. His righteousness goes before us. It makes me think of Isaiah 58, 8. It says, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, same language, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. A real beautiful picture of what it means to humble yourself before the Lord and to live faithful lives honoring him in all that you do. Righteousness goes before you. It's, it's, no, it's not coincidental, folks, that when you look back throughout history at some of the great revival periods in our day, not in our day, but you know, over the last 2,000 years, that those revival periods are also accompanied with, with things like the abolition of slavery, right? The condemnation of abortion, Sunday school movements, right? That transform educational systems, right? Homes that get built, sick, sick people who are taken care of, poor that are cared for, orphanages started, right? It's not coincidental. It is the byproduct of revival. Exact same thing for us. If we long to see God's renewing work and his spirit poured out on us as a people, you can expect not just will our lives be transformed, but you could also expect to see transformation happen in our community. And through us, through things like mission, right? Missionary movements started, right? China reached. Like these things are the result of revivals. And you can expect the exact same thing to be true for us. If God really pours out his spirit, my goodness, there's no turning back. Things just won't be the same. Paper yesterday, the front page of the paper had a um, title, something to the effect of Images of 2020. Simple article, I thought it was going to maybe be a little more, it was four pictures. Images of 2020, the idea of, you know, here's some pictures that sort of characterize this difficult year that we had. One picture was that of a Black Lives Matter protest on the Pentecost. Another picture was that of a tree laying on top of a house. Another picture was that of people sitting in a gymnasium floor as they were caucusing for their preferred political candidate. 
And the fourth final picture was that of students at a high school football game wearing masks. Pictures that really in many ways summarize what our year has been like, the challenges that we have faced, images of 2020. Fast forward a year. If the Lord really pours out his spirit, renews us as a people, what will those images look like? What images would you expect to see as God renews us, works in us, and throughs us, and through us, through this thing called revival? What images would you expect to see? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, because what we're actually going to do is spend the next month exploring those images. I'll summarize them for you real quick. The first thing you could expect to see, image, is an increasing delight in Jesus Christ shared among God's people. That God's people, and this is, this is historical trends that you see when revival breaks out, when renewal takes root. Increasing delight in Jesus Christ among all people. Second one is you will see an increasing repentance of, of sin. You will see people returning to the Lord, humbling themselves through repentance. Third image that you'll see is an increased devotion to God's word. An increased devotion to God's word. A commitment to be in God's word. Fourth thing you see is actually not just a devotion to be in God's word, but a delight to go deep in God's word through things like doctrine and theology, understanding those things. That's a, that's a fourth thing that you will see, an image of renewal. And fifth, you will see an increase in love. And I can think of nothing that our church and our community and our world needs more right now than that, right? At a time when between, you know, social issues, COVID-19, people are divided, as divided as I can ever remember, I can think of nothing that we need more right now than that, love, increase of love for the people of God, for the, for the neighbor around them. So those are things I think we can, you know, expect to see God do in our midst, cry out and ask that he would do, all right? Um, I'm going to go ahead and I think Lynn is going to lead us in the Lord's Supper, so I'll just pray real quick and then Lynn will lead us in remembering together God's grace to us through Son, Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And um, Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity that we have as a people to cry out to you, that you're a God who, um, who always wants to hear from us. Lord, you want to grant us the desires of our heart. And so Lord, as we ask that you would do a work in and among us, Father, um, we ask so out of desperation, but we ask also with expectancy. Help us to be people who wait well. And help us to be a people who refuse to take one step if you are not in it. Father, we love you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.